0: Good morning. Got a full one here today. I like it. Uh, I hope you guys have had a good week. Um, we've been busy. <laughs> uh, it's been good. <laughs> but uh, It's kind of all coming to a bit of a close now. If you're a visitor today, I'm glad you're here. I want to welcome you again. Um, what I'm referring to in being busy is uh, we've had a baby who's now 16, 17 days old, um, <laughs> closed on house on Wednesday, painted it Friday, and moved yesterday, slept on the floor on a mattress yesterday, so it was, uh, it was fun, <laughs> um, but we're glad to be there, we're glad to um, to have some roots uh, that are be able to hopefully be able to sink down a lot further than we've been able to do yet, even in our marriage, um, so we're excited about that, and apparently that area of Riverside is quickly becoming an outpost uh, for the gospel. <laughs> as uh, Robbie's already there with Kristen, and we are there now. Um, Liz and Caleb are nearby there, uh, and uh, the Gaskins are are fishing over there. So <laughs> let's pray for that, and uh, it's going to be really cool to be able to go down the street and say, you are responsible for discipling this person, because uh, we're about that close. So with that, um, let's jump into our text. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy still. We're moving into chapter 2. So we've seen Paul's charge to Timothy, right? In chapter 1, verse 3 and 18, particularly, he's been dealing with false teachers. Now, if you're a visitor today, we've been walking through 1 Timothy. Uh, this would be week, what, four, uh, that we've kind of been pacing ourselves through here. Uh, covering a much smaller section this week than we did last week. Last week was such a big thought uh, that had to be uh, teased out all the way. Uh, that this week we're able to kind of drop down to a little bit smaller and manageable chunk. Uh, But we've seen in the first chapter primarily a big argument to deal with false teaching. That's happening in the church that Timothy is a presiding elder over in the city of Ephesus. Now in dealing with these false teachers, uh, Paul drives, as he does so well, probably better than any other biblical writer, a contrast that we just can't Ignore You see one side of the argument, and then he comes to such another extreme to show just how deep the contrast is between the two opposing schools of thoughts. And so when we're dealing with false teachers with Paul, he obviously addresses them pretty strongly, particularly in verse 3 and 18. But then in the midst of those instructions, we see Paul recount his own experience with the glorious gospel of grace of of our Lord Christ Jesus, as he would say in verse 12 through 16 of chapter 1. And these stand in direct contrast to the teachings of the false teachers who focus on the law. And the the inevitable end, as Matt said several weeks ago, of legalism and following the law to its fullest extent is not righteousness, it's self-righteousness. We find ourselves making shipwreck of our faith. We find ourselves leading others and ourselves into inane babble, into various controversies. It really gets us nowhere. He used the illustration of a car who was just running at like 6,000 RPM, but not going anywhere. You keep that in neutral, you're not going to go anywhere, but you're going to make a whole lot of noise while you're doing it. And that's kind of the picture that you see legalism driving too, while Paul gives a nice contrast of showing what the glorious gospel of grace looks like, not only in his own life, but what it should look like in the church's life. Now, in this next main section, as we move into chapter 2, we're going to not switch gears, but it's an inevitable following over what he's already been leading us in. And so in this second section, the second chapter even of 1 Timothy, Paul's now seeking to instruct Timothy in terms of how he wants to see the church at Ephesus reshaped. And we're not entirely sure if it's due to problems in the shaping of the church and its own self. Uh, we do see a lot of structure happening, but coming out of false teaching, at least being present and being accepted by many there. And so he's got to kind of reshape and help mold this early and young church. So we'll see instruction for pushing for a renewed focus on the gospel and godly living, especially as a contrast to the legalism and the ungodliness that is evident in these other ministries of the false teachers. So this section then will include material about the centrality of this gospel that he so well outlined in the first chapter. What are we going to do because of that? And we'll see the vital importance of godliness, not just for church members in chapter 2. But then we'll see again in chapter 3 how important godliness is as a character trait, as a whole consuming gospel identity, particularly in church leaders. So if section section 1 highlighted the presenting problem and it was directed at Timothy, then section 2 is going to address the needs of the church at Ephesus. We see first in chapter 1 the outline of what's wrong with legalism, what's missing, and what the gospel helps fill. And now we get to see how it's actually going to address the needs at Ephesus, particularly, in order to show what a God-centered and godly church should look like. So Paul showed us a picture, if we remember, at the end of uh, chapter 1 in 18, 19, and 20, we have a picture of shipwreck and that danger that comes with shipwreck. It's a bit of a lost idea on us uh, the idea of shipwreck but as we talked about last week you think about having everything that matters to you on that vessel and if you're not paying attention then it seems to happen all of a sudden where you run aground everything is shattered it's broken it falls apart all your hopes your dreams all, all your fears even don't matter anymore because it's all over for you and like the Titanic 70 years later we find just a shell of it on the bottom of the ocean and no remnants whatsoever of humans. It's just gone. That's what shipwreck looks like. That's what the danger of losing and abandoning faith look like. That's what the danger is if we don't see the problems coming and take heed of the word of God. To not just hear, as James would say, but to do the word. And so as Paul gives us that great picture, we see that there's a lot that needs to happen to the ship to keep it from hitting rocks. In fact, having this ship heading for the rocks, we need to immediately steer away from the rocks and head into deeper water. We need to address the behavior of the crew. That needs to be dealt with. Why are we heading this way? Has no one decided maybe we should veer a little to the left? Let's get away from the oncoming danger. Let's communicate the problems that are abounding. And if you look again with Alexander and Hymenaeus, two of the officers of the ship have been dismissed. And so we need guidance in appointing new leaders to steer it. And so we see what does the church need to do in Ephesus to reshape, get a gospel-centered picture on who they are as an identity first in the gospel and then in what they do out of the overflow of that identity. And so the big, today, the big idea today is we look at just verses 1 through 8, and we're going to tread a little lightly on 8 because Matt's going to be able to use that pretty heavily next week, but we're going to take a, a piece of that this week. The big idea today is that on the basis of God's love and Christ's death, we are to pray for and preach to all people. On the basis of God's love and Christ's death are the foundation that caused us to pray for and preach to all people. Now, we should be able to take most of those implications right there from chapter 1. But as Paul is so want to do, he just decides to lay it out for us in chapter 2. He makes it very clear explicitly what we need to be about. So, with that, let's read our text today. We're going to be in again First Timothy chapter two, verses one through eight. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, as I've prepared this message um, in recent days, given what's been going on, um, but having reflected on it all week, um, the reflection I've had to do all week has probably been the hardest on my heart rather than the studying of the Word. Um, I've had to repent a lot, over this, um, over this sermon, uh, particularly coming out of what we, what we went through last week uh, on Sunday and, and looking through the glorious gospel of grace. What should that drive me as a, as a pastor, as a leader, as a husband, as a father, as a son? What should that drive me to do? And uh, this idea of prayer that we're going to be talking about a lot today uh, is something that, that was sitting heavy on my heart all week. Um, as a matter of uh, um, just trying to be vulnerable, uh, I have a, a healthy, at least I should be, I'm an elder, uh, a healthy prayer life, um, but I notice a lot that we're going to talk about in verse 1 and 2 to be where I had to repent over, um, to see compassion and care overflowing out of the gospel rather than out of my duty, again, as I talked about with Joy last week in the uh, and previously, it, it's not a duty to pray. It's not just a, uh, and we use the word check mark. It wasn't a check mark for me. It's just something, and my identity as a pastor, as a father, I need to pray for my wife, my kids, my, my, my congregation. But the, com- the care and the compassion, and the, to the extent and goal that Paul lays out for us here, um, w- was a hard thing to digest all week, uh, particularly when it's a seemingly somewhat self centered week as people are helping us with meals, as people are helping us with childcare, as people are helping us with moving and painting and all these other things that are very self-serving in a sense. Uh, it's hard to then try to dwell on this passage and uh, look at how I need to have care and compassion, not just because people do things for me, not just because it's my duty as a pastor, a father, a husband, but out of overflow of the gospel in my own heart. And so... With that, let's jump into our first point today, and it's the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer covers one and two for us. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every Way. And so I guess to kind of start is if we were to take five minutes now, just right now, to pray, well, what would you pray for? How would you open? What would you say? What would you pray for? Just kind of think of a few. How would you open if you had to pray right now? Why would you pray for the things that you pray I think, uh, yeah, well, I did this list for uh, a prayer guide for the mission team that came up, and uh, I, I didn't tweak it. I just went to look at it again to see kind of what I was thinking at the time. Um, this, is a, this is the uh, thing that we just read earlier, the confession and petition. It's a good thing to do before you start a prayer. But then here's kind of like the bullet points. This is for them over a while. This is a quote from Spurgeon, so don't freak out. Just um, <laughs> Just some bullets. And I went to look at it and see what, what was I intending for them to accomplish, uh, what were we praying for, why were we praying for these things, and uh, I, I think this covers it, but again, we lose a lot of motivation in these things. And so one of the great dangers I find even in here, and of course they were here to pray for us, so it's not outrageous that there would be a lot of renovation church specific items on there but one of the dangers of prayers if you're active in it in the first place and not overcome with busyness is that it can increasingly become inward looking and we see then after it becoming inward looking a corresponding lack of concern or interest for those outside and so how did that flush itself out in my heart i'm inward looking i can be inward looking and be concerned about renovation church at the same time right that's a danger. It's easy to tweak. Is my concern for renovation as a body or is it as for individuals and care and compassion and that? And so, yes, I can be a legalist and say, well, my concern is for the church, but in reality, my heart is certainly trying to earn righteousness on its own and not concerned necessarily with what is going on. You have to be careful that as we Notice our prayer becoming self-centered. It also becomes limited in vision. I did look through this list, and I noticed some things on there that were really inward-looking. And just thinking about what else there could be on that list, I missed a lot of things that were happening on around the world with our country. Now, I had to pray for our country's leaders, and that was a bullet. I don't mean, know wasn't names or anything. We become kind of limited in focus and vision and being able to understand what's going on around us. I think one concern uh, that I would share with you guys and something to reflect on your heart this week is that if you don't know what to pray about, it's probably because you're missing what's going on around you. And most likely, if you're praying, you're probably praying for yourself. And you know, if you're like me, we're just not that interesting. There's not that much to pray about. And so our prayer becomes very repetitive, it becomes very fill-in-the-blank. Not that we shouldn't teach our children disciplines like that, that's obviously a very valuable thing, but as adults, are we praying out of discipline or are we praying out of relationship? Because I have to discipline myself to communicate with my wife, but our communication is not just repetitive, it's born out of relationship. And so that communication then becomes robust, it becomes intimate, it becomes uh, enjoyable, it becomes God-honoring because it's happening in a disciplined fashion regularly, consistently, uh, with God-honoring intentions, but it is born out of relationship. So what are some ways maybe that you find yourself tending to develop your rut in your praying? If you pray or if you don't, what is causing you to stay in either rut? I think, having thought through it this week, all of my reasons are me. I just get inward focused on what's going on. I've got a lot of responsibilities to take care of. I've got things that I've got to do. And so God, power me through that. Okay, I pray that. Give me strength to do that. Give me wisdom to lead well. Those are all great. But what am I failing to be concerned about? Well, for the most part, everything that God's concerned about that we can draw a pretty strong implication from in this text. But we'll get to that. What are some things or people that you always pray for? And what are some things or people that you never pray for? I think in contrast to this inward focus, Paul's vision is incredibly outward-looking and very extensive. It's completely comprehensive, as he longs for the gospel to make an even greater impact on the world around him. And what's interesting is this, this isn't a piece of what he does. Coming out of the gospel in the contrast between the false teachers and the gospel of grace, what is his first of all? His first of all is an urge or a longing for people to pray. This is a top priority on the agenda for the church. We talked last week in, in combating uh, spiritual warfare, what are our two weapons, scripture and prayer? I've been in church for a long, long time, all right? Maybe not as long as some of you older people, but for most 27-year-olds, I've been in church for a long time, and I don't miss very many Sundays, even when I was a kid. So you think 52, 50, we'll take two off a year. I don't even take two off here. 52 times a year, I'm there, and I hear sermon after sermon. Wednesday nights, I was there. school, we had uh, chapel. We weren't as holy as Cedarville, so it was only three times a week. Uh, But we hear it all the time. I've heard maybe five sermon messages, devotionals on prayer. For Paul, it's a first of all item. For the church, it seems to be uh, less than 1%. And, And then to me, it's no wonder that as an elder, I'm struggling my prayer life sometimes. Things that we should have down pat, like scripture reading, memorization even. The first of all items I'm missing a significant chunk of if I'm not careful. This has to be at the top for us. It has to be a priority for us. And every time I've heard it, every time I've repented of it, it's always, I'm just going to do my discipline harder. I'm just going to do my discipline more. And like everything else that we find here that we talk about, it can't just be try harder. This is a gospel issue at its core. For Paul, the foundation for prayer is the gospel. Because of the gospel and for the gospel, prayer should happen. Now, in the New Testament, we see roughly seven different types of prayer. And he lists four of them right here. And depending on what your translation might be, he gives basically these four supplications or requests. That's a specific need that's directed towards God. Now, we should pray to God through Christ. We'll see why in just a minute. But these specific needs are directed towards God. Then we see general prayers, and basically that is just prayers. So communion, relationship, talking, however you kind of want to fashion that. It's just communion with God. We should be talking to God, meditating on his law, is hearing his words to ourselves, over and over and over again as the psalmist would say I do day and night intercession this is the issuing of like an earnest urgent or bold appeal for divine action in behalf of others So we're interceding not for ourselves I find myself interceding for myself a lot I can't Christ and the Holy Spirit do that for me and then the believers do that for me I am to intercede for others on their behalf And then finally, thanksgiving. So this would be just presentations of gratitude towards God. He is our provider, understanding that. This is where we get songs like 10,000 Reasons, right? This is just offerings of of praise, of thanksgiving to God for what he's done, for who he is. Just as Paul did in verse 17, adding this, um, 17 of chapter 1, adding this doxology at the end of this awesome theology. That is where we get this idea of thanksgivings in our prayers, Not just in our corporate singing and worship, but in our actual prayer, are you praising God? Now, if you look at the language here, we see that it's plural. And I think that this indicates the variety and the frequency of prayers. It's it's supplications, requests, prayers, intercession. doesn't have intercessions, uh, but it's a a plural. Uh, We look at thanksgivings. This This is multiple times, and he gives us four of seven different ways to pray. There's a broad variety of prayers that we can lift up to God, and it's a very rich activity because there's so many different things that you can do. It's just like God's Word in studying, praying is just as rich of an activity. I think if you look at the, I don't know that this is entirely what the Holy Spirit may have intended, but if we look at kind of this order of these four, we see like specific needs and then just communion with God, and then like earnest pleading and requests for others. And then Thanksgiving, when those things are answered. Even today, though, we read, we should be thankful sometimes when God says no to our prayers, right? I think of it like me, with Apple products and my wife. Um, How does this communion go about? Well, first, uh, I, I would ask. Jessica, may we? May I, please? Have this device with a fruit on the back. Then, if that fails, I plead, right? You don't understand how important this is to me. I need it. Now, here's the kicker. That typically will never work, right? Because I just go to, like, four-year-old mode. So after that, I grow up a little, and then I go to, hmm, I'm going to persuade her that this is the course of action that we should take, right? We should spend our money where we spend the most time. It should help with efficiency in our lives, and I can bullet it out, right? My spiritual gift is teaching lists. Lists abound for me, all right? That's Evernote. She hates lists unless they're, like, Shopping, right? Doesn't work either. But in the event that it actually is successful, I respond greatly in Thanksgiving, right? There is much worship to be found, much gratitude, foot rubs, all you know the works, right? We do that with each other, we do that with things that we want here. Can we do that with God? I'm not going to try to read that into Scripture, but I think it's interesting to look at how these different things might progress, how they play together, because there's other lists that he gives of prayer with those other three different types that, that combine in different ways depending on what you're praying for and why. But Paul just kind of gives us a good outline to follow here, and that it, we are to ask. He wants the church to then plead and keep asking. And then respond with thanksgiving as God graciously answers. Whether that answer is yes or no, God heard. And God responded. That's awesome. Praise God that he knows what is best. So he tells us then to pray in all these different types of ways for all people. We see a lot of alls in this passage. First of all, out of everything, pray. Pray. And so by saying all people, who then should we pray for? All people, for kings, all who are in high positions. By urging intercession for these rulers, Paul's affirming their divinely appointed position. Submission to governing governing authorities uh, is standard New Testament teaching. Jesus even says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We see ultimately that we are always supposed to live in submission to those that are appointed over top of us an authority. Now, obviously, the, typically, the response we hear then is, well, what if it's an evil government? Well, what if the government is doing things that are ungodly, supporting things that are against, contrary to Scripture? Well, I think in the case of ungodly conduct, conduct of those in power, we would have to look then at Jesus' commands. He says to pray for those who persecute you. He says to love your enemies. So how do we then find ourselves having to pray for these people? I think if we want a modern day good picture of this, if you're familiar with what's going on across the pond with ISIS or ISIL, however you want to say it, with the Islamic uh, extremists, I will say, uh, movement that's going on there with the Islamic State, it's pretty rough. It's incredibly rough. We talked about first world problems last week. We can echo it again this week. I had no concerns driving down Colonel Glenn that I was going to get stopped, pulled over, and have my head sawed off. I can put a Jesus fish on the back of my car if I want, and the worst that's going to happen is when I cut someone off, they're going to, well go to hell. But that's dangerous, right? I mean, if that's our first world problems, we've got to be careful that, you know, we're complaining about an ungodly enemy. We have to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. And if, you, if we think that ISIS is bad, I, I would say it's pretty rough over there. It's maybe not quite, it's certainly not the Holocaust. I, I shouldn't have said maybe, I apologize. It's certainly not the Holocaust, but it, it is a rough time for Christians over there and being persecuted. But let's remember the context that Paul's coming from. I know some of you don't like history, but you should recognize this name. Nero, pretty rough dude, right? Nero was a terrible emperor, or Caesar, whatever. He was terrible. He was incredibly cruel. He persecuted Christians to no end. And so for us, if Paul's saying, pray for those guys, because he's not thinking President Obama when he writes this. He's thinking Nero. If Paul wants us to pray for people like that in that type of scenario, it's hard to think of a situation or any other scenario where believers would be exempt of praying for those and authority over them. Paul would have the church pray for the leaders of the pantheon of gods in the Greek and Roman worlds. These churches that are in Ephesus and Corinth, the temple prostitution, all these things, pray for them. Pray for the for the clerk who sits in city council. Pray for the people that are in the government. He would have us pray for Nero, the Roman government, our soldiers, He'd have us pray for all of them. He'd even have us pray for the false teachers. He'd even have us pray for those that are shipwrecked in their faith. These are those who persecute us. These are those who are our enemies. And see, the primary promise of praying for those people, though, is not their well-being. We don't need to pray God protect our leaders. We don't need to be praying for that. We're not concerned necessarily about their well-being, Primarily. Okay, obviously that's that's a piece of the pie. But Paul's concern, you can cross-reference this with verse 4, is the safety of believers. That seems incredibly self-serving, right? It seems a little self-serving to pray for leaders for my benefit rather than for their own. But if you look in verse 4, you'll see why. He says, to pray for those who are in high positions. Why? That we do this so that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way that's the goal pray for them so that this may happen a peaceful life is not one free from turmoil Paul would certainly argue with that but rather a peaceful life that he's talking about here is a life lived under the general protection of civil authorities this is why I was able to drive down Colonel Glenn and I have to worry about getting pulled over and have my head cut off we're getting stoned or any of these other things, relatively free to drive down through road construction. <laughs> We're talking about really a, a measure of peace and tranquility for us, or in his case, the apostle, to engage in extensive gospel ministry. We're able to do things in this country that we can't do in a lot of places in the world. We're allowed to send people to the Dominican Republic and not have our, why are you going on this plane, business or pleasure? Yes. Um, it's easy. It costs a little bit of money, but it's not hard to do. We don't have to go through any extensive checks or, or, or application processes once you get your passport uh, to go and do ministry. Here it's easy We have churches everywhere. Yeah, we have the, the battles that we talked about last week with, with humanism and constantly knocking at our door and relativism and The battle against homosexuality is is a rampant and accepted and celebrated thing for those who would disagree with it on biblical grounds. We have these things knocking at the door for us, but it's not hindering us from doing our mission. We still live in peace, relative tranquility. That's what allows us then, it should be at least, to do great gospel ministry. Unfortunately, in the church, the church has a history of only being really prolific when we encounter intense persecution. The way that God has designed it would be for us to be able to live peaceful, quiet lives so that we may be unhindered in the gospel endeavors. But for some reason, it takes a nice hot iron under our bottoms to motivate us to move quickly. And so as a point of application today on, on just this part, a peaceful life should be something that follows us. What follows your life? What is behind you constantly? Do you have a tendency to have peace and tranquility, a quiet life? Or is there in your wake difficulty and trouble stirred up? Say that the mark of a Christian is a peacemaker. We'll see in chapter 3 that the leader, specifically, must be spoken well of by outsiders. My Facebook arguments have gone way down over the past couple of years. Um, I realize that they're not entirely fruitful. <laughs> Uh, and a great cause of anxiety uh, does not give peace and tranquility should we be ready to have those conversations yes but they should be winsome in nature and they should be conversations not walls of text uh, we have to be careful on these things what's following your life Do you, are you constantly busy are you constantly trying to make things happen well, certainly there are seasons I'm in the middle of a season right now there is still relative peace I'm not putting out fires behind me all the time I'm able to do what I need to do at great pace, but we're able to do what we need to do. That should be the mark of what we're trying to accomplish as believers. And secondly, again, back to the priority of prayer. Of course, we're going to talk some more about it uh, as we go through his digression. How what's your prayer life like? Do you pray? For what? Why? How often? Out of what motivation? Out of what concern? Out of the gospel and an overflow, or out of rigid discipline? You need to understand the priority of prayer and what it's for. But the second thing that he moves us into in verse 3 and 4 is the centrality of God's love. The centrality of God's love in verse 3 and 4, he says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is elaborating now in verses 3 through 7 before returning to verse 8. But first he notes that it is good and pleasing to God to pray for those in authority. While proper governance is probably the first point of emphasis, verse 4 allows us to infer pretty easily that salvation is also in view for these leaders. It says in verse 2, So that we may live quiet and peaceful lives. If they do their jobs well, if we pray for them. and God's strength empowers them through common grace and the Holy Spirit. As he is sovereign over all these things, recognizing that Jesus Christ first is king of all kings, then we can live a peaceful and quiet life. But that's not just it. What's good and pleasing to him is that prayer, but we see why particularly what is central to that. We can infer pretty easily in verse 4, who desires all people, what, to be saved. That's the driving force behind all of this. God is pleased when our will, represented in our prayer, coincides with his will. So what is good is to pray these things that he specifically has asked you to pray for. We remember that scripture is God-breathed. It is the words of God, not the words of Paul. Paul wrote them down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we understand that these instructions are from God himself. These are the types of things that he wants us to pray for, and he says that it will be pleasing in his sight. This allows us, if you, something I hear all the time in youth ministries, I don't know what the will of God is in my life. Let me introduce you to Paul. He's very good with that. This is the will of God for us to do these things. First of all, of most importance, do this. That's the will of God. Go home and do that. And we will continue this conversation. When our will lines up with what he's telling us to do, it's pleasing to him. It coincides with what he would have us do. His will was made clear in chapter 1. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Verse 3, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who what? Desires all people to be saved. Paul's incredibly good at crafting these. He's pulling back from chapter 1. So, who should we pray for? Well, again, we see these words all, often. Who desires all people to be saved? They're all men, all people, depending on what your translation is. It basically gives us the scope of God's redemptive activity. It's universal. It includes pagans as well as Jews. The false teachers would think that it's just the Jews. The Judaizers would want you to follow the law. They would want you to only be Jewish. Or maybe, maybe a proselyte Gentile who still does the law completely. That's the only way that you can be saved. Whereas we see the opposite contrast that Paul shows us that the redemptive work of God is universal. It includes Gentiles. As he is getting ready to say that he was appointed for it. God himself appointed him to go to the Gentiles. So, for us, here being saved is equated with coming to a full knowledge of the truth. He says in verse 4, Who desires all people to be saved? What? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth would obviously be the antithesis of what the false teachers taught in their false doctrine. It's a pretty easy connection to make, right? If the legalists are teaching the law only, and saying that this is the only way... And then we're going to miss the revelation of Christ himself who comes and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. We see that Jesus Christ once and for all earned righteousness for men. But for them, they would say that the truth is simply due to the law, whereas Paul would say truth is the opposite of what they are saying in this case. Truth leads to Redemption. But this type of truth doesn't just require knowing, which is what the false teachers would say. Just know, grow in knowledge. Yet they never arrive at the truth. They are always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. This salvation by Christ and the truth requires repentance. And we spoke at length about this last week. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary when we see the law expose sin in our life. We have to then acknowledge our need for a Savior. But Most of us, I think, I'm concerned at least about is that we see our sin, but we don't realize that we need to be saved from it. If we don't realize that we need to be saved from it, or we can't admit it at least and acknowledge the truth, then we lie in our sins unredeemed. But true salvation requires repentance of that and acknowledging our Savior, acknowledging the fact that we can't earn that righteousness, that it's already been earned for us. We don't have to die that death anymore. It's been done for us. And so a repentance into truth gives us a full assurance of salvation. The heretics, their followers, always learning, never able to acknowledge the truth. Have you acknowledged the truth today? Can you look at Scripture as, as we did last week, the week before, today, this week, next week? Can you acknowledge the truth of God's Word? I got to speak at uh, East Dayton Christian School this past week in their chapel. And we talked very simply over a 12-minute devotional. I'm calling it devotional. They call it chapel. Uh, And a a, a 15-minute one after that, through James, just being doers of the word, not just hearers only. We hear the word. They hear the word all the time. They're going to have different chapel speakers, but the word of God remains the same. Do we just hear the word or do we do it? Do we take careful... uh, heeding to do the, the word of God and understand that it's not just enough to hear it. I, I told the kids, would you believe that I'm a ballerina? No of course not. why? why? you don't look like it thanks fat joke fun. <laughs> um, okay but I' but I've seen people do ballet. Uh, okay that doesn't work. I, I can't go to the batting cage hit a couple balls and say I'm a baseball player. That doesn't work that way. We actually have to do what we hear. We actually have to apply what we know. We actually have to acknowledge the truth and not just hear it. And so Paul centers his calling on the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You see that in Titus chapter 1 verse 1. As he leads off that letter to Titus, his other son, in the faith. Uh, The faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That is the end goal of the gospel, is godliness. The end goal of legalism is inane babble, controversy, and arguments. So the centrality of God's love is what's driving this prayer. As we look at three, this is good. This prayer is good. It's pleasing. Why? Because he desires all people to be saved, to be out of his mission to seek and to save the lost out of his mission to come into the world and save sinners. Now, I think we can understand that when verse 4 says desires all people to be saved, we certainly understand that God does want all people to be saved. Well, it would seem, we can't see into heaven and into hell, but it would seem as if there are those that do not go to heaven, which means God's desire must fall short. Why is God's desire is not being accomplished. Paul would lead us very carefully through here and understand that the faith of God's elect, those that will respond, those that have been predestined according to his foreknowledge and understand the knowledge of the truth then that leads to godliness. But there are those that are blinded from being able to understand that. So God's desire is not faulty. God's desire is not faulty. He wants all people to be Saved, Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. But not all will respond. We see in Romans chapter 12 that God's the one that gives faith. God is ultimately responsible for the calling of and the completion of the salvation of his elect children. But it's not just his desire that's not faulty, but it's Christ's death that's not faulty. And so the third point today is that we see the meaning of Christ's death in verses 5 and 6. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. But first, before we talk about ransom and and Christ's death specifically, let's talk about the first section there in verse 5. There is one God. This is an incredibly important phrase in this culture, okay? We're dealing with a pantheon of gods. The Roman mythology, Greek mythology blend. There's just everywhere, right? We look at Eastern religions and there are multitudes of gods. There are very, very, very few monotheistic religions in the history of the world. And Paul says there is one God. This monotheistic idea of one God sovereign, is foreign to the culture that Paul's dealing with. Now, the Jews should know this, right? But Paul was called to go reach the Gentiles. And as Timothy is teaching in Ephesus, it's not a Jewish city. <laughs> the Gentiles there would be familiar, or at least comfortable, with the idea of multiple gods. So to say that there is one is a pretty major remark. But then he goes on to say that there's only one mediator. Well, some Religions would acknowledge that, yes, there's one supreme God, but there are other mediators that mingle with humans and act on their behalf or against their behalf. And so there are different mediators between them and that one supreme God. But Paul doesn't just say that there's one God, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, the, the superman, Christ Jesus, the ultimate man himself, who is Christ the Messiah. He was God, and he was also man Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Isaiah chapter 46, 9-10, through 10, this is God, and he says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The sovereignty of God is a re- resounding gong throughout the words of Paul. The sovereignty of God is what drives him to be able to say that God desires all men to be saved, but he is responsible for the salvation of those that he has elected. The sovereignty of God is what drives the gospel being him who empowers us to salvation without any participation on our behalf. We see that justification, sanctification, and glorification are 100% completely in the hands of God who has started a great work in you and will finish that. The sovereignty of God is what motivates and drives this gospel. If God is the only God and he is the one that declares from end to beginning, from ancient times to the future, things not yet done, he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish everything that I have purposed. Well, if he's going to accomplish everything that he has purposed, then certainly his desire, as we saw in the last point, is not faulty. The ransom is also not faulty. The atonement of Jesus Christ was complete and comprehensive for the sinner. In verse 6, we see that who gave himself as a ransom for all, that word again. Jesus gave his life, understand, in two ways, both in exchange for and on behalf of others. This is what we would call the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement has Jesus dying in our place and also paying for our sins. Substitutionary atonement is a driving piece to this preaching and this prayer. Basically, in our substitutionary atonement, we understand that Jesus died so that others might live. Including, in our case, of who should we be praying for, even some who hold positions of authority. I think it's interesting as we look at the substitutionary atonement, that if salvation was tracked through Paul's argument here, okay, if salvation comes from coming to a knowledge of the truth, verse four, right, and in verse seven, consists of preaching the truth. It's striking that preaching about substitutionary atonement comes between these two things. I think it highlights how central the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is. Why do we lose our focus in the gospel? Why do we lose our power of salvation? We talked about lack of seeing our need for saving from our sin last week. I think it's because we forget that we've been atoned for this power of the substitutionary atonement falling in between this understanding of this is the truth that saves and we need to talk about it is what what grants that there's no use preaching for salvation coming to a knowledge of the truth if we've not yet been atoned for without the atonement and the fact that we have had our sins expiated and our and the wrath has been propitiated we're stuck there's no reason to preach this word if it's not yet been done. But Paul sandwiches it in between there and shows us that the substitutionary atonement, this ransom for all, is complete and comprehensive for the sinner. He goes on to say, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's kind of a bookend on the substitutionary atonement. He sticks God's sovereignty in there again. The proper time is, I think, twofold. It's both Jesus' timing and coming into the world. Why did he come into, into history at the point that he did? God's sovereign plan. Isaiah 46. I will accomplish what I have intended to accomplish. My counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And then second, I think the timing would be in Paul's preaching. I think the fact that Paul came so far after the original apostles and uh, being commissioned is not (laughs) ungrounded in God's sovereignty. Those other 11, 12 guys, did what they were supposed to do to help get it started. And then Paul comes on the scene and he says, here's all this material. Let's grow as a church. <laughs> he was commissioned to go to the Gentiles at the proper time. And so God's sovereignty, again, is overarching through all of this. And so finally, it moves us to the last point, the urgency of preaching. Verses 7 through 8. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, so just to get this, uh, get this done, in those parentheses, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. If your child comes up to you and says that, are you more inclined or less inclined to believe them? Just wondering. <laughs> I think this is why we respond sometimes to, like, crazy things and say, no way. Right? It's always, you're lying. There's no way. For real? Paul's trying to get rid of that for real, all right? <laughs> that no way. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Uh, why does he do this? It's a convention of the time. This is not the first time that he's done this. It just... <clears throat> It leads us a, a solemnity to Paul's description of his own calling. It just adds some gravity and some weight to it. He, he's earnestly expressing the truth and the seriousness of the situation. It's pretty akin to what he did in, in chapter 1 when saying, this is a trustworthy saying. It seems weird to say that, right? But it just adds some gravitas to the truth that's that's being said. And he goes on to do that in uh, several other places. And it, it is possible that his authority was being challenged particularly in Ephesus when you have this false teaching going on. But, but it really is just a, a convention of the, of the language. So anyways, going uh, back to his main thought, that at the beginning of verse 7, he says, For this, for what? For everything that just came, I was appointed a preacher. Because there's one God, because there's one mediator, because the ransom was presented, because they, God desires men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, because of all that, and not even just that, because of the gospel that I just got, out, got done outlining for you uh, a moment ago, this contrast between truth and false doctrine, because of all that, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles and faith and truth. Paul states that it is precisely the proclamation of this gospel message that is his calling. He's already affirmed that he was entrusted with the glorious gospel in verse 11, right? This uh, enabling grace that we talked about last week and this employing grace that gives him a job. uh, As he receives grace, he's he's affirmed that already. And he's also affirmed that he was appointed to Christ's service in the following verse in verse 12. He now, in chapter 2, asserts that he was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. This is the same description that he gives, again, in his next letter to Timothy in verse 1. Uh, chapter one, verse eleven. He's a herald. He's an apostle, a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. We see this word truth again, and we see his target audience being the Gentiles. And so, what what is a herald? A herald is kind of like a proclaimer, a preacher, an apostle. Obviously, that is a specific office that no longer exists. And then a teacher, and all three of those describe different but not mutually exclusive functions. They're related and similar. But they don't cancel each other out. And while we no longer have apostles, we certainly have preachers and teachers, right? And we're getting ready to talk about that office in the next chapter. But even the office of preaching and teaching is not necessarily an office, as an elder would be considered. It's simply a function. In fact, teaching is a spiritual gift that's given to all, well, not all believers in some measure, but primarily to... Believers and preaching as well, or uh, prophecy would be a, a proclaimer. That's also a spiritual gift that's given to believers. And so these things are things that believers should be doing. It's not just Paul. Nonetheless, he was appointed for this specific task. And so he was appointed by God to bring, to teach, to instruct in what? In faith and in truth, the same truth that a full knowledge of will grant salvation he says he has come from before in verses three and four that is what god is desiring and he is simply a partaker and a pawn and that grand plan of god to save sinners but we touched just a little bit on verse a i'm going to save a lot of it for the next thought that will develop next week but we're going to talk about a specific part that's related to prayer just as ritual purity was essential for jews new testament believers were to pray with their hands cleansed from all spiritual defilement or impure, impurity where did i get this and you know, i desire then that in every place men should pray what lifting holy hands why without what anger or quarreling anger and quarreling is a list of the evil fruits of the spirit right these are things that are not good how do we approach the hill of the lord give me clean hands give us pure heart right Cutlass. thank you um that's how we approach, with clean hands. And so raising hands then, holy hands, without, so they're holy, right, set apart for holy use, sanctified hands that are free from defilement, basically. And then we see that that's the type of coming to prayer that men should do. I desire then in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands, being spiritually pure. The plural, men, Hands seems to reflect the plurality of men leading the congregation in prayer and worship. So a question then to you gentlemen that were here last week as we met in our small circles to pray for those in Haiti. Were you leading in prayer last week? Do you take the position? Do you act like a man? We're going to see verse uh, 9 talk about the role of women and uh, different functions. But We see in verse 8 that the men should be leading. We've got to step up, gentlemen. That's our role. We should be leading the congregation in prayer and worship. We have a multitude of men that lead in various functions here in home gatherings. I think it's not just, though, obviously the men we're going to see roles for the entire church going forward. but Men, we are to lead. But the immediate reference of everywhere, I desire that in every place, everywhere, Uh, he's certainly talking about the various house churches in Ephesus that make up the larger Ephesian church. But ultimately, the scope is certainly universal in nature. It's not just that he wants to see this in Ephesus, right? He wants to see this in Thessalonica. He wants to see this in Colossar. He wants to see this in Galatia, in Corinth, in all the world. Wherever the church is, this should be happening. So in every Christian meeting place, we should be praying. First of all, I urge you to pray. We try to keep prayer a pretty foundational piece of what we do here on Sunday mornings. I try not to just utilize it as a transition as we are often wont to do in our American liturgy. But understand that every time we pray, it's not just so that the singers can move off the stage, but the fact that we as a body are going together to the throne to make intercession, to commune with God, to make requests, to offer thanksgiving, to mourn, to confess. These are the types of things that we do together in the Christian meeting place. He says, without anger or disputing, this is the removal of barriers to ensure effective prayer. One of the biggest barriers to prayer is focus. You sit and try to pray for longer than a minute, and you start thinking about everything else that's going on, right? You just wander. (laughs) That's why sometimes an outline's a good thing. We're distractible creatures, and we have lots of cares and concerns that will overwhelm us and take us away from the care and concern that we should have with God. Now, certainly, if that happens in ourselves, and if we have any type of angst or anything going on that's hindering relationship with other believers. We've got to get that out of the way. We have to remove these barriers. Or our prayer is not going to be effective. Because we're going to start praying about them. They're annoying. God, sanctify them for me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, our scope of our prayer starts getting more limited. The effectiveness of our prayer starts getting turned within. And it becomes inane babble. I think the emphasis here is on holy. The picture painted here in our prayer is that we pray for all. We pray for everyone. For what purpose? The gospel. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners, whether it be people in authority or all people. We should be praying for salvation for these people. We should be praying in and because of of the meaning of Christ's death, understanding that God's ransom for man is sufficient to pay any and every penalty of death, of sin, the grave. He has overcome it all. The glorious gospel of grace that we just got powers us to do this. And so now our prayer can be God-honoring. It's not out of duty. It's not out of, uh, out of discipline. It's out of care and concern for brothers. I intercede for other people. It's out of care and concern that I make requests for other people. I want things to go well for God's people. I want them to lead a quiet and peaceful life, whether that's because the government has allowed us to do so, or whether God simply gives blessing to believers. I want them to be in the best possible situation to flourish, whether that's sanctified affliction or whether that's peace and tranquility. Trust God to teach and lead in any and all circumstances because he's sovereign and he accomplishes what he intends to do. His counsel stands. I understand that this can't just be something that I do, but it's about preaching and telling people that because we have been atoned for and it's available to those who are sinners, that this word has to be preached. We join with Paul in being part of the church and out of his desire for Gentiles to know the truth, he decides, first of all, pray. Verse 8, I desire then, because of this, that you pray. We have to lift holy hands together and pray. And so for Paul, this holy hands picture, is that of a church that is submitted to authority, it's united in doctrine, it's united in prayer for the salvation of all. What a description of the church. Can that be said of renovation yet? I think we're on our way. But not until this becomes a first of all concern. You see, for Paul, restructuring, reshaping the church, it starts with the gospel. And taking that ship into deep water so that it's safe from the rocks, from the shoals, from the waves, from the storms, we go out into deep water. And there, we let that gospel motivate us in reshaping the church, whether it's what we do, and why we do it, who we are as an identity, sinners now saved, and what that means even for simple matters such as structure of the church and leadership. But the goal is a church that's submitted to authority both within and without, united in prayer by doctrine that leads to doxology and is concerned about the salvation of all. That covers every identity that we have as a church, as we try to push on through those five identities, that's all of them. What a description. We want that to be said of this place. Let's go together now and worship together as we finish out today. Let's pray together. Use this time of worship to reflect on the words as we did last week. Look for the truth that's contained in what we're singing about. And please, 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 let it be motivated out of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are, Father. Your character is simply astounding. Father, as we reflect on who you are and what you have done in and around this world, Father, we know that you are in control. We know that your sovereignty knows no bounds, whether it be here on earth or in the universe at large. Father, we know that you are powerful. and Father, we know that you desire to see men in relationship with you. Father, you sent your Son in order to make that happen and had him die on a cross to pay for our sins. Father, the atonement has been made, and we trust that atonement. Father, we trust the work of Christ on the cross. Father, make us into, into, into believers that look like your Son. Father, fashion us in a way through prayer, through affliction, through training in righteousness, through rebuke, through study, Father through just laying down our lives and dying to ourselves help us look like your son. Lord, we love you and we pray for all this in Jesus name. Amen.